0: Once upon a time, in a faraway mythical land called New Zealand in the 1970s, an ex-Salvation Army captain couple joined the Pentecostal movement, known as the Assemblies of God. Some years later, on the basis of yet another vision, William Francis Houston and his dear wife Hazel, along with their five children, fled to the Great Southland, Australia. Smith Wigglesworth had said that Revival would kick off in Australia while the Lord tarried, and the Houstons knew that this was the start-up to end all start-ups, a marketing campaign that would be unstoppable. Frank and his son Brian would go on to systematically dismantle the community-led AOG and turn all the churches into mini-empires with a prince in every realm. But there would only ever be one king. And it wasn't long before the nation of Australia and then the world was infected with the special message that Frank had to impart. By 1989, Hazel, unable to contain what she had witnessed any longer, decided to publish the biography of her beloved husband, he who was touted as a mighty man of God. And while most just called him Frank, Pa, or the Bishop, others recall him simply as Satan incarnate. Hazel Houston offers a special look into the private life, family and psychiatric history of the man who sought to prey on every nation. Reading Hillsong presents Being Frank.
1: Chapter 1 The End of the Beginning. It was 10 o'clock in the morning when Frank disappeared. For three weeks, I had watched him being smothered by depression. His eyes were strained and his concentration poor. Feel this lump in my neck, he would say to me. I could never feel a lump, but he would get angry when I told him so. Fearing another nervous breakdown, I talked to our doctor. He listened to my story, but he didn't seem to realise the seriousness of it. If only Frank had come with me, but he wouldn't. He would be very angry if he'd known I was there. I don't think he'll have a breakdown. He simply needs a holiday. Take him to the mountains. What? On a Salvation Army officer's salary? Impossible! Our salary of six pounds a week didn't stretch to luxuries even in 1954. The crash happened on the day the Salvation Army Divisional Commander was due to audit the books. Frank and I had worked on them together for an hour, finalising details in preparation I should have been prepared for what had happened, as I had noticed moments when he would stare blankly into space. Then he would continue working. When all was finished, he drove to the post office to get some stamps, or so he said. When he wasn't back by 10 o'clock, I began to worry. Colonel Beth arrived sharp at 10.30. Still, Frank was not back. Something had to be wrong, for he was never late for appointments. Frank has gone to post some letters. He should be back at any moment, I explained. Colonel Beth seemed quite unconcerned. While he settled himself in the lounge with the ledgers and record books, I became an agitated clock watcher, pacing to the gate and back every ten minutes. No sign of Frank. I checked our two small boys playing happily in the spring sunshine and fed our three-week-old baby girl. This kept me from total panic. As the morning wore on, my anxiety became unbearable. I felt I had to share it with someone. I would tell Colonel Beth. He might be able to tell me what to do. He didn't seem very happy at my interruption. Colonel, Frank still isn't back. He's been gone for two hours. What shall I do? Don't worry. I'm sure he'll be back soon. How could he sit there and say that? To me, it seemed impossible that anyone could remain unconcerned when I was in such a turmoil. I think I'll tell the police. They might look for him. A person has to be gone for more than two hours before the police will regard him as missing. He was right. Worse was to come. Lunchtime was over. And Brian, still only 18 months old, went down for his afternoon sleep while Graham went back to the garden to play. Thank God my tension was not affecting them. I tried to concentrate on household chores, but the feeling of impending disaster which gripped me made it very difficult. Pray. I must pray. God will bring Frank back. Many times we'd preached on prayer. Now I must put it into practice. God, keep him safe and bring him home. It seemed God wasn't listening. I still had no peace, and Frank didn't return. Suddenly, Colonel Beth appeared with some books in his hand. He dropped a bombshell when he said, There appears to be a discrepancy in the books. They don't balance with each other. Can you explain this? My stomach knotted in disbelief. No, I cannot explain it. I had no idea what had happened. This was an area of church life in which I had no part. I left it entirely to Frank and the church treasurer, This could be a police matter, you know. I looked at him in shocked silence. How could he say that before he talked with Frank or the treasurer? Although I didn't ask him how much of the books were out, and he didn't tell me, I knew we were not thieves. Had this man no compassion nor trust in the officers who had served in the army for 12 years, I was glad to see him turn his shiny shoes in the direction of the lounge All respect I had for him faded at that moment. Mid afternoon, Maureen, our six year old daughter, rushed in from school full of the events of the day. It was hard to stay still long enough to listen to her eager chatter, but that restored some calm to my spirit. I guess now why Frank hadn't come home, but that still did not tell me where he was. I felt totally alone now. To whom could I go? Salvation Army officers were advised not to make friends in the congregation and after the events of the day, I could not go to Colonel Beth. The afternoon dragged on. I prayed again, Lord, give me strength to meet whatever comes. Help me to face the church board when they come for the meeting tonight. I knew it could only be by divine grace that I could face those men, especially the one we call the Whistling Man. As well as being a board member, he was a Sunday school superintendent and a bandsman. He earned his nickname by always whistling when he, the band marched into services. He knew it would annoy the captain. Maybe if I left the door open, the men would walk in without bothering me. Colonel Beth could explain Frank's absence in whichever way he chose. The children demanded my attention. Mummy, read me the Peter Rabbit book. No, we had that one last night. I want the one about Noah and the ark. Come on, all of you, it's time for bed. As I undressed them and listened to their prayers, I heard the various members of the board arrive. I was right when I thought they would just walk in. I had avoided the embarrassment of meeting them. Perhaps it would have been better if I had seen them, for most were kindly men. Now there was nothing to occupy my thoughts except the problems of the moment. If there had been a car accident, I'd have heard by now. God, why can't I trust you? Why can't I pray? There seemed no answers. Instead, doubts and queries flooded my mind. What would our future hold? Could we go on being Salvation Army officers? Frank had been increasingly frustrated in his work and often talked about resigning. Sometimes we failed to send in the weekly required reports. In the next mail, there would be a letter demanding an explanation. Dear Captain... We have not received your visitation report for this week. Please tell us how many hours' visitation you have done and how many people you have prayed with. We need this information immediately. God bless you, yours faithfully. Henry Beth, Colonel. Maybe we had visited an officer in another town without asking permission. The rules and regulations said we had to ask headquarters before leaving our area. But the book contained so many rules that we never mastered them all. None of that mattered now. The present was more important than all that had happened in the past. And my only worry was where Frank might be. It would have been easier to go looking for him than helplessly waiting. It didn't occur to me until then that Frank had taken the car and could be miles away by now. I decided to wait another half hour and then phone the police, no matter what anyone else said. The doorbell interrupted my reverie. Frank was home. I knew it. But I didn't want to open the door for fear of what I might find. One look told me everything. He stared vacantly at me as he leaned on the two men who had brought him home. The truth hit me hard. Frank was an emotional and mental wreck. The two men, members of the church, helped me get him into bed. There was no sign of recognition, hysterical amnesia, the doctors called it. He wandered into our place about an hour ago. We could see he was ill, the men said. The car! Where is the car? Was he driving it? He was, but we have driven it here. How could anyone drive a car in that condition? I realised that the board would have to be told about Frank's state but not yet. This was something I must handle myself. If the whistling man saw him, it would be all over town in no time. I could imagine him saying that the army captain was out of his mind. It was a horrifying thought. No, I couldn't tell them now. I was easy at the way Frank tossed from side to side, flinging his arms wildly in every direction. Would he sleep through the night or would he wander off again in his confusion? Whatever he did, there was no way I would sleep easy with that uncertainty on my mind. Sleeping pills. I must get some sleeping pills. I was sure if he was sleeping, I would sleep. I phoned the doctor. Doctor, Frank has had a breakdown. No, there's no need to come tonight. If you could prescribe some sleeping pills, that will be enough. I'll send round some capsules. Give him two and I will call in the morning. Almost as soon as the capsules slipped down Frank's throat, the restlessness ceased, while the stress of the last few hours drained away. To avoid any fuss, I determined to tell the colonel as he was about to leave, but I'm sure he knew that Frank was home. I'd like to see the captain before I go, he said when I told him. He's already asleep and I don't want him disturbed. Thankfully, that was the truth for I was convinced it would not be in our best interests for Colonel Beth to see Frank just then. His accusation still rankled in my mind. He stalked off down the path, his displeasure showing in his face. After shutting the door, hiding the car keys and checking on the children, I fell into bed, glad that a nightmare day was over. Lord, watch over us and give us a better day tomorrow. It was a prayer of Desperate hope rather than solid faith. God seemed well and truly hidden behind the events of this unforgettable day. With morning came new strength. Rested in mind and body, I felt prepared to face whatever the day might bring. Frank was still asleep when the children came tumbling out for breakfast. Suddenly the sound of singing came floating down to the kitchen. For the first time in 24 hours I laughed fancied the Salvation Army captain singing Grace Kelly's song from the film High Society. True Love seemed to be a favourite tune. It was a proper recital, for he sang it over and over in a voice not yet spoiled by preaching. He might have sung a hymn or a chorus. Did his singing foretell a brighter day? It was not to be. As the sedative wore off, his depression returned. The only difference between that and the next three mornings was the song he sung. And the huge congregation he imagined had come to hear his preaching. Hazel, he'd say, here are all these people waiting for the meeting to begin and we have no pianist. Will you get one? I humoured him by saying that I would. Those were the only bright spots in the day. On the fourth morning, he asked me to take him to the hospital. He didn't need to ask twice. After a quick call to warn them we were coming, I piled the children in the car, got Frank aboard, and we were off before he could change his mind. The hospital was an old stone building with a forbidding atmosphere, enough to discourage anyone who was already depressed. Frank hesitated at the door. I couldn't let him change his mind now. Come on, dear, the doctor will be waiting for you. The doctor was waiting. His questions were few. Dr. West understood the situation perfectly. He seemed to sum up the problem from Frank's sagging shoulders and downcast eyes. I think you had better stay with us for a few days. I need to go home to get my razor and toilet gear. Frantically, I told the doctor by signs from behind Frank's back that he wouldn't return. Dr. West did some more coaxing. Frank hesitated and then agreed to stay. I could see a look of relief on his face as he walked away with the doctor. He straightened himself and walked more surely than he had since the day he disappeared. He said later it was as though a load had rolled off his shoulders at that moment. He felt secure. He may have felt secure, but there was nothing but insecurity for me and questions. Why, God? Why have you allowed this to happen again? There had been an earlier breakdown and I'd prayed there would never be another. Didn't God know that I felt I couldn't cope with a sick husband and four children, the youngest only three weeks old? Why, God? Why? 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 Heaven wasn't answering. Instead of the burden lifting, such a blackness smothered my soul that I didn't seem able to reach God. My prayers were not getting beyond the ceiling, I thought. In reality... My understanding of knowledge of evil forces was nil. Up to this time, spiritual warfare had consisted of battle over the rights and wrongs of ballroom dancing or the movies, and I hadn't worried about those since the first year I was born of the Spirit of God. Far into the night, I wrestled with these powers of darkness. Sleep eluded me, and, except for the baby's cry for a midnight feed, The silent hours dragged on, undisturbed. At four in the morning, tired and depressed myself, I knew that I could not battle this thing alone. God was my helper. The Bible said so. God, you know all about the wise. I don't. I give it all to you. Inexplicable light flooded the room, and I fell asleep to awaken three hours later, renewed and at peace. I wondered why I had taken so long to really yield to God in this way. What lessons He was beginning to teach me. But He knew what battles were still ahead, and the lessons of faith which I needed to know if I was to win through to the place He had for me, for us. When I went to the grocery store that day, it suddenly occurred to me that what little money I possessed would have to last a long time. Our salary would cease at the end of the week. Sure, government assistance was available, but from the time I lodged an application until the money actually arrived, was likely to be weeks. The social welfare department was never in a hurry. Again, I thought over our position as Salvation Army officers. The Salvation Army had been our life for years. We had found the Lord through its ministry and the call to be officers in its ranks was very real. If we were to leave, we would need to be just as sure it was God bringing us out. Why was I thinking like this? Frank had only just entered hospital. Common Sense said, "'Wait until you know the doctor's report,' and what the Salvation Army leaders have to say about it. I'm sure little promptings of the Spirit were beginning to awaken me to the voice of God. The feeling that our work as officers was finished became stronger until I was certain that life would take a new direction. I never thought that we would have to give up being Salvationists, but a number of questions rushed to my mind. Where would we live? What could Frank do after so long away from the secular workforce? Houses for rent were hard to find. The one we were living in was owned by the Salvation Army and made available furnished to the officer in charge of the corps. They'd need it now for our replacement. We would have to move out soon. We all began to look forward to our visits to Daddy in the hospital. We'd sit in the garden and he would tell us about his life there. After a complete physical examination, Dr. West confirmed there was really no lump in Frank's neck as he claimed there was. He explained that nervous breakdowns were often accompanied by physical symptoms which had no physical cause. After this, Frank began to improve rapidly. The effects of the insulin treatment amused him. Today I saw two of Dr. West as he came round the ward, he told us. Another time, he had such a violent reaction to the drug. He went dancing down the ward. The nurses grabbed me, flung me on the bed and poured heaps of glucose down my throat to counter the effects of the insulin, he laughed. It was wonderful to see his old sense of humour returning. Encouraged by the doctor, he eventually recalled the events of the day he disappeared. He had posted his letters and then driven miles through the city and up a winding road to the top of a hill. It didn't seem possible that he had driven all that way without an accident. He recalled a stranger asking if he was ill and suggesting he bring him home, but Frank resisted that suggestion. What took him to the home of those church people? We were both sure it was the hand of God that led him. The day came when I was able to talk to him about the missing money. It was as I had guessed. He had shown amounts he had not collected, or was hoping he could do it tomorrow. He was never well enough. The root of the problem was the fear of failure and the probability that he would be appointed to a smaller church if he had not reached the target set by headquarters for that appeal. Our major problem during those days was that of money. I had to feed the children somehow, which was no easy matter when we had no income. The grocer at the end of the street allowed me to charge groceries to an account. At least the grocer trusted me. Twice Colonel Beth phoned to see if I had received any benefit from the social welfare. Once he gave me five pounds, ten dollars and the offer of getting clothes from the Samaritan Department. I cringed at the thought. Over the years, I had sorted clothes which had been sent to the army. Some of them were so dirty and in poor repair. I shuddered at the thought of them. We would manage somehow. At last, a senior officer from Territorial Headquarters came to talk to me. Have you thought about your future? He asked. A little, but I have not discussed it with Frank. I'm beginning to think we should resign from officership. You don't need to do that, but we will have to take you out of church work and put you in social work. We have an appointment for you working with homeless men. Frank would never do that kind of work. He has been called to preach. The officer looked strangely at me. Don't you realize that Frank will never preach again? I was dumbfounded. In a flash, I saw discoveries I had unconsciously made as I had been seeking God. His call had not changed, nor could miracles of earlier years be forgotten. I knew I had heard a lie from hell. He will preach again, I was shouting. How could the man say that? His understanding of the situation and mine were totally different. It was a week after Frank's discharge from hospital that we received a telegram asking Frank to contact the divisional headquarters. What now, I thought. When Frank went to see him, Colonel Beth came straight to the point. Someone has been collecting with an official collecting book in the district. Was it your wife? Frank walked out of the office without answering. He could scarcely tell me of the accusation. What do they think I am? I shouted angrily. Whoever it was collecting, it wasn't me. The pressure was really on now. Once more, we had experienced the hurt of not being trusted. It was impossible to justify ourselves, but the Spirit reminded us that it is God who justifies. And years later, we were to experience that justification when officers who were sick and discouraged came to us for prayer and help. Now, certain as we were that God had called us into the army, we were certain he was calling us out. Sadly, we posted our resignation, not only from the ministry, but from the army, which we loved. Nothing more was said about the accusations, and we were convinced that they knew we were innocent. The call continued, but it would be in a different direction. Now we were without home or job. All we possessed were six forks, two pairs of blankets, and an old radio. With four children to provide for, God was going to have to do some miracles and do them quickly. But then, Frank's life had begun with a miracle.